would always answer the same way. I'd say, I'm rejoicing in the Lord. And one day he asked me why I said that. And for about the next 15 minutes, I just gave him verse after verse after verse. <laughs> and uh, he walked out going like hitting his ears. And I says, what's wrong, Jimmy? He says, he says, Patty, he says, have you ever heard of information overload? <laughs> so last Sunday, when I went from Tegath Policer in 743 B.C. to Revelation chapter 22, I think it was information overload. So I had a couple people ask me to do a timeline of some of those world empires and where Israel fit in all that. And so I probably did information overload on this PowerPoint. I've never done PowerPoint before ever in a church. And so I kind of got excited. I started finding ways to do things. <laughs> and I found some really neat slides, so I added them. So it's going to be maybe over information too much again. But let's turn to the book of Nehemiah. The setting is... Susan, the capital, which was sort of a summer resort for the king of Assyria. They would reside there, and Nehemiah is the king's cupbearer, a very, very honored position. It was a position that you would never have an enemy <laughs> fulfill, but it was somebody that you trusted. And the interesting thing here is that the Persian Empire was very cordial toward the Jewish people. And Artaxerxes has a Jewish cupbearer. It was quite a, a formality. You'd come in and pour water over your hands so that the king would see that your hands are washed, there's nothing in your hands, there's nothing up your sleeve. And then the cupbearer would take a drink of the cup, and then he would bring it to the king. And so Nehemiah is functioning in this role in Shushan, the palace. So he's, he's living in the lap of luxury right here. He's a confidant of the most powerful emperor that the world has at this moment. Um, and so this is the backdrop. He's got his fellow Jewish people 700 to 800 miles away who were part of a remnant group that returned back to Jerusalem. Jerusalem has been destroyed, brought down to nothing, raised to the ground, walls burned, temple destroyed, all the pride, all the hope of a Messiah, a kingdom, has been dashed. And so Jews who are living outside of the kingdom of Israel were actually faring fairly well. In fact, Jeremiah encouraged them to plant vineyards, build houses, give your sons and daughter because your prosperity will be in this land and pray for the prosperity of your kings. So I'm going to get to this in just a second and show you when they came back and, and, and what, what decrees brought them back. But Nehemiah is serving the king under this capacity as the cupbearer. And he gives us the exact month and the year of when it happens. It's in the 20th year of the king. So I'll go ahead and let you remain seated today. I know you're standing in your hearts, right? <laughs> so the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, 
It came to pass in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year. So we know this is 40, uh, 445 years before Christ. I was in Shushan, the citadel, that Hananiah, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. So it was when I heard these words that I sat down, and I wept, and I mourned many days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God. If you've got an old King James this morning, it says the terrible God. And it's not in the sense that he was a terrible person or a terrible being. Terrifying, awe-inspiring, one to be revered. The Hebrew word has the idea of reverence and awe and respect. And this is who Nehemiah is praying to. This is who we address. Not only is he the awesome God, but you are a God who keeps covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments. Please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now day and night for the children of Israel and for your servants and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which they have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you. We have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances, which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember, I pray the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though you were scattered out to the farthest part of the heaven, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling place for my name. Now, these are your servants and your people whom you've redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I pray Please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name and let your servant prosper this day. All of that prayer to finally get down to the request, that tells me a lot about the way that we should be praying. We come running in, God do this, God do that. Nehemiah saves this to the very last and it's just It's just a little appendium at the end of this wonderful praise and adoration and confession. Lord, here's my prayer. Grant your servant that he may prosper this day and that I might have mercy in the sight of this man for I am the king's cupbearer. So I'm going to try to to move through this. Israel and the world empires that were around them. So this is a picture of the Assyrian Empire and the capital of the Assyrian Empire is up here on the river 
um, the, the Tigris River, of, and the capital's Nineveh. And so there's, there's the city of Nineveh. Uh, you can see how far it expanded. But notice that, that Judah is a little bit lighter than the rest of this map. And that's because Judah never fell into the Assyrians' hands. They always remained independent. Now Israel, on the other hand, had its capital right here in Samaria, and it was under the sphere of the, of the Assyrian Empire. So that's, that's how vast this empire spread over the ancient Near East. Now, this, I included it right here, and, and because the Assyrians never conquered Judah. They tried to. King Sennacherib came about 700 B.C. So they, 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 this is the, the, the peak of the Assyrian Empire. And this is a relief found in the walls of a library in Nineveh, archaeological discovery of this. And these are the Samaritans that they are marching against to take into captivity. Now, there's several things that kept Judah independent. And one was a godly king named Hezekiah. And Hezekiah saw what was happening. He saw city after city in Judah falling to the Assyrian Empire. And he says, God, I don't know what we're going to do. And they are outside the walls of Jerusalem. They have just destroyed our most powerful city. It was the city of Lachish. The Bible is the only one, only reference we ever had of this huge battle at Lachish until they started discovering things. But not only did Hezekiah pray for God's help, he said, they're going to camp outside of this city. And I've got irrigation ducts that go out into the gardens. And the kings are going to find all the water that they want. He says, at least, at least let us make it hard for them. Let's stop the water. But we've got to figure out a way to bring water into the city of Jerusalem. And for years, people mocked that you could dig a tunnel under the city of Jerusalem through solid bedrock. 2,000 feet long from the Gihon Springs, which were outside of the city of Jerusalem, underneath bedrock, snaking all the way under the city, burrowing from opposite ends, and then somehow meeting each other in the middle. We're not talking about a straight tunnel. We're talking about one that snaked under the city, one that had a 12-inch drop from the spring to the pool of Siloam. That's a 0.6%. Anything else, the water would have backed up, or too much, it would have gushed in and it would have flown out. How in the world did these engineers do it? I have no idea. But this, um, I'm not sure, Josh, if I can, if it'll, no, if I, what I need to do to play this, or if it's, is there a, something you can hit a play button maybe, or maybe I'll have to show it next week. But anyway, this, I have a, a video, trust me. <laughs> this is my first attempt. Maybe this is my last attempt. So we'll, we'll skip this one. Okay, so the next slide. Um, these are the captives that are heading out of Samaria. This happened in 720 
2 BC. But this is, this is extra biblical evidence that the Battle of Lachish is exactly as the Bible foretold it. So this is a siege ramp. This is the walls of Jerusalem, or the walls of Lachish, and these are, tip, are pictifying the arrows. And then we've got the Assyrian army just marching right in to the city. And so this happened, 701 B.C., Sennacherib took the fortified cities of Judah, and it's recorded in the Bible, and now we've got extra-biblical evidence verifying this event. Um, now, Sennacherib came after destroying Lachish. What Hezekiah did, he, he sends a letter to Lachish. He says, Sennacherib, please just leave Jerusalem alone. And he says, nothing doing. He says, I'm taking everything you've got. So Hezekiah sends all the gold he can find, and it's not enough. So Sennacherib says, I'm coming anyway. So this is known as Sennacherib's prism, and it, found, and it was found in Nineveh. But the interesting thing here is it records that I have Hezekiah trapped like a bird in the cage. Now, that's not found in 2 Kings 19.20. But what 2 Kings describes is how this entire city of Jerusalem is surrounded and about to be destroyed. Secular historians say if he had him like a caged bird, why does he not take the city of Jerusalem? The Bible has a simple answer. Hezekiah prayed, Isaiah comes back, and God says, I will defend this city. 180,000 soldiers of the Assyrian army were found dead the next morning. Sennacherib goes back to Assyria, disgraced, and he is killed by one of his sons, Esarhaddon, and in the temple, exactly as Isaiah said was going to happen. There was no proof that this ever happened outside of the Bible until this discovery. So after the Assyrian Empire came, the Babylonian Empire, and it's not quite as strong, but here's, whoops, whoop, whoop, whoop. So I need my pointer, okay. So one more, I need to, got the wrong kingdom. So I want to show you where Lachish was. There is Lachish, and you can see how close it is to Jerusalem. So that's all he had to do to take the city of Jerusalem. So that's a, a picture of the Babylonian Empire, um, which began in 605 B.C., and Here's the city of Carchemish. So Nineveh was up here, and it was destroyed, and they moved the capital, the Assyrians moved the capital here to keep it further away from Babylon, but it was to no avail. So that's the Babylonian Empire. And then we have one more great empire. Um, it's not going to let me go to it. Okay, there's the... Medo-Persia Empire, which is even more vast. So you can see how each empire is growing with its power. So now let's get uh, uh, these were uh, I'm a cotton-headed ninny monkeys when it comes to this thing, ain't I? Okay, okay. Here's the, the city of Megiddo. The only reason I want to show you Megiddo is that King Josiah he wanted to stop Egypt. Egypt and Assyria were aligned. And he wanted to stop the 
Babylonians from winning the Battle of Carchemish. So he's going to come up, and for some reason, Josiah meddles in that at the Battle of Megiddo, and he's put to death. But that's kind of a, a sub-point. So anyway, so here is our timeline. So this is the Assyrian Empire. And Tiglath-Pileser, all of this is found in 1 Kings. And extra-biblical records show the exact amounts. But they wanted 37 tons of silver every year paid to the Assyrian Empire. Mahanian was the king, and he rebelled. So the Assyrians depose him and put a king named Pekiah. Pekiah, he doesn't want to pay, so they install another king named Pekah. Pekah says, I'm not paying. So Hoshea, he is a puppet king of Assyria, and he reigns for nine years because he's going to do what the Assyrians tell him to do. But in 724 B.C., he says, enough is enough. I think I can conspire with Egypt, and we can throw off the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrians said, nothing doing. So they, Shalmaneser comes and besieges Jerusalem for three years, 724, 723, 722, and carries them off to captivity. During that same period, Isaiah is the prophet. So this is the Assyrian Empire. But Isaiah predicts a guy named Cyrus is going to give a decree to rebuild the temple. The temple's not even been destroyed. This is 150 years before Nebuchadnezzar ever came to reign. So we're going to have to go through three kingdoms before we even get to Osiris. So Nineveh falls in 612 B.C. It's destroyed by the Babylonians. So the Babylonians start to take over, and Judah's first deportation is in 606 B.C. That's recorded in Daniel chapter 1. Carchemish, it falls to Babylon. We saw it on the map in 605. And that battle is recorded in the Bible in 2 Chronicles 35.20. Jeremiah is the prophet during all this time. Jeremiah predicts there's going to be 70 years of captivity. This is their first captivity, 606. Nebuchadnezzar destroys Jerusalem, the temple, the walls, everything's burned. That's what we're picking up in Nehemiah. That happened in 586, and it's recorded in the Bible in 2 Chronicles 36, 17. Cyrus takes Babylon. The writing is on the wall. The Babylonians are in power. The grandson of Nebuchadnezzar has this huge banquet. He says, I'm going to show off how powerful I am. Go get all the golden vessels that we took from the J Jerusalem temple, and we're going to worship the gods of gold, silver, and wood, and brass, and everything else. And they are having a drunken riot. The Persian have a record of this event, how they blocked the river that went under the wall of the city of Babylon because it was impregnable. But the water level went down, so the Persian army just walked right under the walls of Babylon and walked right in because of all the drunken party that Belshazzar was having, and that was in 539 B.C. And Daniel chapter 530 tells us about that event. It, it was a one-night takeover. Incredible. People wondered how in the world that happened. Well, the Bible tells us exactly how. So now we get 
to Cyrus and his empire. Whoop, there's the cylinder that they've discovered. But in, Cyrus issues a decree to rebuild the temple in 538 B.C. Now, do we have any extra biblical records of that? People, again, said the Bible cannot be true. It's, this is inaccurate. No king is going to give people a right to go back and rebuild their own cities and rebuild their wall. But we have this wonderful archaeological discovery. It's called the Cyrus Cylinder. And in this, it's in cuneiform, and it's giving Israel and the nations around them permission to go back and rebuild the temple. So Zerubbabel, he lays the foundation in 536, and that's recorded in Ezra chapter 3 and verse 8. And it's interesting. That's all the farther they got. The enemies prevent the rest of the building. They send an edict back to the king and say, King, you better look through your records, and you're going to find out that there were mighty, powerful kings over here, and if you let them rebuild this city and rebuild this temple, you're going to lose your tax revenue. So he says, okay, let's, let's just stop it until we can do some investigation. You remember what Isaiah predicted? Before there was a Babylonian empire, before there was a Persian empire, that Cyrus would say, go back and lay the foundation. That's all they did. They laid the foundation. So, but from 536 to 606, that first captivity is exactly 70 years. Well, God said, I want this, I want this built. I don't care what the enemies say. So God stirs up Haggai and Zechariah. And you can read those two books. And those two books are about rebuilding the wall. And they come and they start prophesying. And the people get back to work and they finish it in 516, another 70 years. When was the temple destroyed? 586. When was it finished? 516. God's word is incredible. What was happening during this time that gave the Jews such leverage? Esther became the queen of Persia in 479. She is the mother of of the king who Nehemiah serves under. And he's given permission to go back. Ezra went back 12 years earlier, and still nothing was done on the walls. Now, if you've not been taking notes, you want to get your notes out, and, and because this is this next slide, if I can find it. Write that one down. <laughs> Never mind. Lord Jesus, come to, that's the book of Revelation. So we've got about five more minutes. That was probably not going to happen. Okay, I am not a prophet nor the son of a prophet. Oh, well, I've been, did you? <laughs> um, it's interesting. Let's go ahead and show it. Okay, thanks, Josh. It's only two minutes. not going to be too long. I don't want to give you, again, information overload. But um, I want to talk about Nehemiah just a little bit and how we can apply this chapter to our life. We read the chapter, so we're not going to read it again. But Nehemiah is in the palace. He's living in a very comfortable situation. No, no stress, no worry, got a good job. But Nehemiah is not afraid to get involved in the lives of other people. 
And so my sermon this morning is builders are prayers. And what I mean by that is if we're going to invest in other people's lives, we've got to get to know people, we've got to care about them, and we've got to pray for them. It's simple. If we're going to build into other people's lives, we cannot be aloof. We cannot be absorbed in our own comforts and living in our own little world. Nehemiah was not going to let that happen to him. And it's so easy to do that in modern America. We've got so many distractions. We've got so many things pulling on us that we just unfortunately don't have time to invest in other people. And yet that's what God wants us to do at North Valley Bible Church. And I'm really encouraged by the things that I'm seeing happen at this church. Just this week, I had a text from a man saying, how can I be more involved in the church? Had a phone call from another lady, and she heard about someone in the church having needs. And she says, send me her phone number. How can I help? And this happens on a regular basis, but we can do more. God wants us to be a successful church. And I think one of those key ingredients is that we are involved in a loving and meaningful and measurable way in other people's lives of this church. So Nehemiah, as a praying person, he first invested his life in other people around him. We see this as we read this text. It says, when Hananiah came, one of my brethren from Judah, I asked them concerning the Jews that escaped, and it's not just concerning, it's he wants to know the details. That's the idea of this word, and it's used twice in this verse. And concerning Jerusalem, I want to know. So, you know, we, we come up to somebody and we ask the question, how are you doing? And we expect the pat answer. But sometimes we can detect something in the way that they answer that question. Oh, everything's it's all right. It's okay. Could be better. And we just kind of walk away. That happened to me a couple of weeks ago. I asked somebody how they were doing. They said, well, it, you know, it's okay. And then I asked them later on that same day, you know, how's things going? They gave me the same answer, and it dawned on me. They're trying to tell me that things aren't really okay, and there's a lot going on. So I probed a little bit deeper, and they told me. And I said, well, let me pray for you. And I, but so many times, and I'm guilty of it, and I was guilty of it then, we just hear the answer, and we brush it off. But Nehemiah, if we're going to be praying people, and if we're going to invest in people's life, we've got to take a genuine interest. It's simple, isn't it? Our interests need to take a back seat to others. Paul wrote to the Philippians and he said this, Look not every man on his own interests, but also on the things of others. Esteeming others better than yourselves, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So if we're ever going to pray for people, we've got to know people, we've got to know their needs. 
He identifies with them personally. What does he hear that he personally identifies with? They, the survivors that are left in the captivity of the promise, they are in great distress and reproach, and the wall of Jerusalem is broken down. He sees himself as a part of this family. He has an affinity with his own people. He says, I sense my own brokenness, my own discouragement. I'm a part of this, even though he's miles and miles away. So genuine concern moves the heart. Look what he does. Verse 4, when I heard, that's the signal. When I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned. And it wasn't just brief. It was many days. And it was with fasting and with praying to the God of heaven. Now, I don't have a lot of time to run the cross-references. I've got them here if you want to, want to look at them. But Nehemiah is adopting a Persian expression here when he says, praying before the God of heaven. And what he's doing is he's relating this book to his audience as well. Now, I want to look at his prayer, the application of this. I want you to if you are taking notes, to write four things down on how to be an effective prayer. I want, to, I want my prayers to be effective. I know you want your prayers to be effective. And there are four simple things here that we can write down. One, we begin with adoration. So simple, isn't it? If you're going to be an effective prayer, we need to begin with adoration. When Jesus ended praying, his disciples came to him, Luke chapter 11, and they said, Jesus, teach us how to pray just as John taught his disciples to pray. And so Jesus starts out saying this, pray like this, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed, holy, majestic is your name. Memorize a psalm if you need to. Psalm 8, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth who has set thy glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and suckling children, you have ordained strength because of your enemy that you might silence the enemy and the avenger. When I consider the heavens, the work of thy hands, and the moon and the stars which you have ordained, oh God, what is little puny man? That's not actually King James, that's mine. What is man that you are mindful of him? So, just take it upon yourself to learn these verses. I was reading Psalm 33, verses 6 through 9 this week, and I tried to pray it back to God. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, the hosts of them by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the water of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spake, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. So he begins by adoration. O Lord of heaven, the great and awesome God. And then he also praises God for his attributes. For his character, the rest of this verse goes on to say, God, not only are you great and awesome, but you are a God that keeps covenant and mercy. God, I'm praying to you because you're a God that I can trust. 
God, when you make a pledge, when you make a promise, God, I can take it to the bank and I can believe it. I can trust it. God, you're the God that gives a covenant. You're a God that gives steadfast mercy and faithfulness. And I know I can trust you. That's why you're a great God. That's why you're an awesome God. And that's why I'm coming to you, O Lord. So we begin effective prayer by adoration. And then secondly, by humiliation. Verse 6. Please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you. So Nehemiah places himself as a servant. If we will humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, he will exalt us in due time. So prayer exalts God and it abases ourselves. He says, I'm, I'm your servant, God. I'm not coming to you as a genie in the box. I'm not coming to you with health and prosperity claims. I want you to do this and do that, God. No, God, I am your servant. Please, God, let your ear be attentive. God, please let your eye be open. I am your servant. So humiliation remembers our position. Humiliation is also demonstrated in importunity or perseverance. That shows humility. You remember the widow who came before the judge night and day and wearied the judge. You remember the parable that Jesus told about the man who's in the house. He doesn't want to get up because he's already in bed. He's got his kids in bed. He doesn't want to get up and give this guy bread. But because of the importunity... And that's a way of demonstrating our humility that, God, I am in desperate need of you. And so Nehemiah not only brings himself as a servant, but he comes with humility and he says, God, I pray before you day and night. A third thing that demonstrates humility is confession. Confession is from a heart of contrition, of brokenness. Confession is personal. The Hebrew word yada, to confess, it literally means to throw or to cast. When it's used in this form, it's a reflexive. The idea is I am throwing it back and forth. I am communing. I am talking. I am exposing everything that I have. I am hiding nothing. The Greek word for confession is hama, which means the same, and legeo, which means to speak. So when I am confessing, I am speaking the exact same thing about my sin. I am throwing it up. I am casting it up back and forth between God. I am not holding anything back. And that takes humility. So it remembers our position. It's demonstrated in importunity, and it involves contrition or brokenness. The third aspect of effective praying is we pray biblical truth back to God. This is so simple. I start out by adoring God. I start, then I secondly, I humble myself. And if I want God to hear me, I pray his truth back to him. And this is exactly what Nehemiah does. After he confesses, he says, we have broken, we've acted very corruptly. (laughs) It's... The Hebrew is so cool. I mean, I don't have time to go into it this morning. But anyway, verse 8, look where he starts here. He says, God, remember, I pray, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you to all the nations. God, I, 
We are scattered. I'm in Susa the palace. Jews are all over. And God, you are true to your word. Leviticus 26.33 says, If you forget the Lord, if you forsake him, I will scatter you to the ends of the earth. And what Nehemiah is doing here, he is verifying to himself. You know, God doesn't need to know what he says, but we do. We need to verify, God, if you said this, and this actually was fulfilled, then I know the second part of this is just as true. If you said Jesus Christ is coming and he's going to be crucified, then I know Jesus Christ is coming again. God, I know that if you said Jesus Christ is going to give his life a ransom for many, then God, I also know how much more will he not freely give me all things. And so what we are doing is we are reestablishing and reaffirming our faith by verifying God's word. He says, God, you said this, but if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you are cast out of the farthest part of heaven, I will gather you there and I will bring you to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling place for my name. God, you chose Jerusalem for a dwelling place for your name. You chose it as the great city. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God and the mountain of your holiness. Beautiful for situation or elevation is Mount Zion, the holy city on the sides of the north. And it was to be the joy of the whole earth. That's the, God's design for the city of Jerusalem. And Nehemiah now hears, oh God, our city, your city, your temple, everything that represents your people and your kingdom is ruined and burned. And God, we've got to do something about it. And God, if you said you would scatter us and you did it, then God, you are going to be faithful if we will humble ourselves and return to you, God, you will bring us back. Nehemiah is getting ready to ask God to do something miraculous, something that he's going to need divine intervention for a Jew to go back and rebuild the city. So he's saying, God, only you can do it. But God, if you can scatter us, and he did, you can also bring us back. So our basis for prayer is about God's word. The verification of God's word strengthens our faith. Promises are on the basis of our appeal. God is faithful, and he is bound to his covenant and to his character. He had chosen Jerusalem, and God said, this is where I'm going to dwell. Finally, we need to have petitions that are pleasing to God. So those are the simple four steps of how we can pray effectively. One, we start out with adoration, worshiping, praising God. Secondly, we humble ourselves before God. Thirdly, we pray back God's truth to him, and then we make sure that our petitions are pleasing to God. And so verse 11. O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name, and let your servant prosper this day. Realize that our desire is for God's name to be revered and reverenced. When you pray, and you're praying for God's name, I desire to fear your name. God, I want your name to be exalted. When I was a kid, I used to think 
praying in Jesus' name was like a rubber stamp at the end of every prayer. I want this, this, that, and the other in Jesus' name. But when we pray in Jesus' name, means that I am wanting you to be glorified. I am wanting you to be honored through this request. Jesus said this in John chapter 14 and verse 13. Whatever you ask the Father, I will do it. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it, that the Father might be glorified in the Son. If you're asking a request for your own selfish ambition and not for the glory of God, you can just take it down that that prayer is not going to be answered. But prayers that please God are for his name and for his sake. Psalm 34, verse 4 says this, Delight thyself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. If your desire is to honor God in every situation, you're not going to be praying for God to get you out of that hard situation. You're going to be praying for God to use you and to glorify you and to give you strength to endure that situation. So when you delight in God, it's not about you anymore. It's all about what God can do and for his glory. Another wonderful promise that we have is in 1 John 3.22. It says we keep his commandments, we do his will, we know that whatever we ask, that he hears us. Our deepest need is dependence on God. That's where God wants us. So his second part of his request is he says, God, you grant me mercy in the sight of this man. You do it, God. I don't want to be manipulating things. I don't want to do it in my own strength. God, you do this because I can't do it for myself. Those are prayers that bring glory and honor to God. So the way that I begin to build into other people's lives, one, I realize that I'm an integral part of North Valley Bible Church. Every one of you are related and interconnected. You're not aloof. You're not by yourself in your own little world. Nehemiah was not separated mentally, spiritually, emotionally from his people. And we have got to reconnect with each other. So if I'm going to be a person that builds into others' lives, I've got to understand that the body of Christ is called a body for a reason. The hand cannot say to the foot, I have no need of you. We are an integral part of one another. Second, I've got to ask with genuine intentions of getting involved in people's lives. When you come up to somebody and you say, how are you doing? You need to be saying, how can I help you? What's going on? How can I invest in you? How can I be a blessing to you? When Nehemiah asked concerning the Jews, he knew that that was a risk that he was willing to take. Third, realize that something of real significance is going to move you to prayer. When you hear about somebody in the body of Christ who has a real genuine need, let it move you to prayer. And how do I pray biblically? Simple, four things. You exalt God. You humble yourself, reminding of your position. You pray continually. You confess your sins. And you acknowledge your utter dependence on God. Third, you pray truth back to the Lord. And lastly, you pray in a manner that pleases God for His name to be revered and be glorified 
and that a sense of complete reliance is on him, and without him granting it, it won't be done. God, give me mercy in the sight of this man, because I'm the king's cupbearer. God, you're going to have to move on his heart. So next week, we're going to see how God does that. Four months later, Nehemiah is still praying, and God answers. Father, God, I thank you for this church. I thank you, God, that we are growing in these areas that I preached on this morning, that we are deeply interdependent on the body of Christ. None of us have all the spiritual gifts. None of us have all the spiritual wisdom or the insight or the resources to build your kingdom. But God, together, we can build just as Nehemiah did. God, I pray, Father, that this evening that you will begin or continue this work in our lives as we as a church go out and observe people in our church home, in our church family that we are a part of, confessing that I am being baptized into the family of God. I am confessing to the world that I am with this group of people known as followers of Jesus. God, I pray that it will strengthen our resolve. It will strengthen our connectedness to one another. God, I pray that you'll be glorified. I pray that your name will be exalted. God, I'm glad that there might be people that are just out there boating or, or swimming or doing whatever, that they will see people who love Christ coming out into a public arena saying, I am a follower of Jesus. God, be glorified through North Valley Bible Church as we extend your kingdom and your love to others in Jesus' name.